Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Any more questions? Comments? Anybody worried? I got a suggestion. What is it, Sam? Forget it. Well, you mean what? The whole deal. Forget the whole deal. Believe me, I like to swing like the rest of you guys, but you haven't got a plan here. You got a pipe load. Is this another of your morbid jokes, Danny, you sadist? What's wrong with our story, Sam? For one thing, 15 years. This ain't a combat team. This is alumni meeting. Any of you liars want to claim that you're half the man you were in 45? And, Dan, if you want to try and catch lightning in a bottle, you go ahead. But don't try and catch yesterday. Old times are only good when you've had them. Sam, some guys grow old without turning chicken. Did you hear about it? Okay, Lieutenant Lionheart. I grant you're brave, but the question now is, how dumb are you? Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. We have a special guest on the show today. We have Richard A. Lertzman. Hi, Richard. Hi, how are you doing, Jenna? Hi, Bart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners might recognize Richard as the author of several biographies, including Dr. Feelgood, the shocking true story of the doctor who may have changed history by treating and drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and other prominent personalities. That is the name of it. Soon to be a major motion picture, major HBO picture. Right. Everything's going to streaming today. (laughs) And also, uh, you are the author of The Life and Times of Mickey Rooney and Beyond Columbo, The Life and Times of Peter Falk, which are also, that sounds exciting. But uh, you have a brand new book that's coming out, uh, that just came out, actually, called Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. And that is why we are here today on <laughs> Cinema 60. Um, I was thrilled to find out about this because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Dean Martin. <laughs> a little too big of a fan. <laughs> uh, I'm specifically his Martin and Lewis phase. Yeah. Um, I I kind of find him more fascinating than I would say I find him aspirational. But uh, I get I get a kick out of the Rat Pack. Um, but I think a lot of it is is sort of trashy at the same time. So I, I really ap- appreciated your take on deconstructing the Rat Pack instead of just repeating the myth. Yeah. Well, actually, my next book uh, for Simon Schuster is on Jerry Lewis. So, oh, really? Oh. I'm sh- I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so we spent a lot of time looking at Dean, and uh, we've had a, a lot of talks with Dina Martin, who's his daughter, and people who knew him. Dina's Dina's wonderful. She she does a, a kind of a rat pack uh, act throughout the country. Yeah, I saw that. That's exciting. I I've re- I read all of these different Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis biographies. I like two years ago was probably the my peak insanity for mm-hmm. <laughs> going down this rabbit hole. So that's that's thrilling to find out. If you you can come back, I'm tell I'm inviting you back already. We haven't even started all the interview, right. and you can come back and talk about Jerry Lewis. I I love it. But but let's um let's start off with a bit about how uh, this current book came to be, which is you telling the story of the Rat Pack through Joey Bishop of all people. You mentioned in in the book that you went to seek him out in the the '90s to ask him about the Rat Pack, and it didn't sort of go the way that you planned, right? Yeah, no, I always was, I was fascinated with the Rat Pack area and this very misogynistic group of the Rat Pack, and and how it still resonated. And I was with a, a, a television producer, his name was Sheldon Leonard, and he had produced with Danny Thomas, The Andy Griffith Show and uh, Dick Van Dyke and all these great 60s shows. And uh, a- along with it, I, he, he had known Frank Sinatra. 
So I said to Sheldon Leonard, can I meet Frank Sinatra? He goes, no, no, because Sheldon as an actor had appeared in Guys and Dolls as Frank Sinatra. He said, no, no chance. I said, how about Joey Bishop? So he said, why would you want to meet? And he used in Yiddish, that Meshuggah. <laughs> I arranged to meet Joey Bishop and he lived in, uh, in, in, in Newport Beach, California in a, in a little gated community called Lido Isle. And Joey had, on his little condo, he had a shrine to Frank and Dean and Sammy and the Rat Pack, huh. which I found fascinating. And Joey had burned like almost every bridge in show business from the time of the Rat Pack on. He had insulted writers and producers and uh, he just, he burned a bridge where the last 40 years he didn't, he didn't really work very much. So uh, we, I got to know Joey over the next 20 years where he, he told me some interesting stories and fascinating stories about being part of the Rat Pack and getting there. And getting there was fascinating because he was working for the mob in mob-based clubs from the 1930s to, to 1960 when he became famous for the Rat Pack. So Joey, Joey gave an interesting perspective to the Rat Pack. When I went to put a book together, you know, I said, well, not a lot of people remember Joey Bishop, but of course they know the Rat Pack. And I had known when I was younger, I had been a lot of the mobsters that kind of put Las Vegas together. And I had done a lot of taped interviews with them. Putting that together with Joey and doing a lot of research on the Rat Pack and how they came to be and going into archives and talking to loads of people who were involved. It, it was a fascinating research project to uh, to look at, the, at that era and that group. It really is. The amount of, and you, you get some really good interviews. I was, I was really happy to see that you talked with Rosemary from the Dick Van Dyke show. I know that she was really involved with a lot of those mob guys and that sort of beginning of Vegas which is also pretty fascinating. And it's, it is funny to see how this whole, this group of comedians and stars all have these sort of tangential mob connections because of just the way that things were working. If you wanted to perform at some point, you had to rub shoulders with a mob guy because that was just the only people that, that owned anything. They owned the clubs. And I got to know Rosie over a lot of years. And Rosie was a great story of the mob because her father was in the mob. He used to burn down businesses as a sideline. And Rosie became baby Rosemary on radio and worked for all the mob clubs for the next 30 years. And uh, she told me a great story. She was at the, the opening of the Flamingo Hotel, which was made famous by Warren Beatty in uh, Bugsy. And she was in the hotel working for Bugsy Siegel, but had not met him. And she had got shorted on her check and she was at the diner at the uh, Flamingo Hotel. So she called, pulled this guy over who looked like he worked there. And she says, you know, I got shorted on my check. They cheated me out of $35. He goes, I'll take care of it. And the guy next to her said, you know, Rosie, that's Benny Siegel. That's Bugsy Siegel. So Rosie goes, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, her mouth will open. And Benny Siegel came out and gave her money. And she became uh, popular with Benny Siegel and all the guys. And they always protected her. And she knew Frank as Uncle Frank, uh, as Uncle Al Capone. I mean, so it, it's that same era and all these guys, Frank and Dean and Sammy and Joy Bishop, they all had to work for the mob guys because they were all worked clubs. It's not that they were in the, in the mafia, but they certainly had a part of it. And in Frank Sinatra's case, he owned 9% of the Sands Hotel, which was owned by the mob. So that that really put him right in the in the heart of all of it. I thought it was interesting. You said that Joey had the strongest mob ties of any of the Rat Pack guys. 
And yet he was the most clean cut of all of them. He didn't drink. He didn't fool around. He was, you know, the, the square of the Rat Pack in a way. But uh, but he's the one who who had the the, the strongest connections. Although Joey had a, had a sort of a squeaky image as his life wound down, we found out more about Joey that kind of told more of a, a deeper story. But Joey um, was was friends with Mickey Cohn, who uh, Harvey Keitel played him in Bugsy. He was the powerhouse in Los Angeles. He had all the mob connections, so that a lot of the studios would come out when. There were union problems. He was the racket central there. So he got to know Mickey Cohn. Joey was supposed to be at a dinner Mickey Cohn had set up to murder somebody. And Joey was going to be the witness. It was at Rondelli's restaurant in Sherman Oaks in, in Los Angeles. And Joey ended up being the, the witness for Mickey Cohn uh, when he went for a murder trial in the, in the early 1960s. So Joey had the closest connection. Frank kind of was on his own, you know, he didn't rely on the mob. He relied on really his talent and his own business. He had a lot of great publicists and, and managers who worked with him. Dean Martin, the same way. I mean, they, they really didn't rely on the mob, but they worked mob clubs. Joey needed the mob to really push through because Joey was more of a journeyman than, than, a, than a Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or Sammy Davis. Well, in the intro of your book, you call Joey Bishop an adequate comedian, which which totally made me laugh out loud in part because that's that's how I've always thought of him. <laughs> but the joke's on us because, you know, he took the adequacy to the bank for sure. But you paint a, a pretty interesting portrait of him as being somebody who knew how to shut up and get things done. And, and you know, with, with some degree of talent, obviously, to charm his way into... Uh, you know, multiple people's good graces at the beginning. So it doesn't surprise me that he would have more mob ties because he sort of knew just how to like hold his head down and, and just get through it. Yeah, he was he was kind of a politician, as as Frank and Dean would always point out. Up until a point, he could schmooze and uh, talk his way into a lot of things. However, you know, there's great comics like in, in that era, Jack Benny and George Burns and, and others like them, Joey wasn't in that realm. Joey was an opening act. Um, Frank picked him to be the opening act because some comics would, would take the air out of a room, like a Buddy Hackett or a Don Rickles. So Frank didn't want that. Frank wanted someone just to keep the audience warm enough to be receptive to Frank. So Joey fit that bill because he just didn't have that kind of energy that those kind of comics had. Talent-wise, Joey couldn't act. Joey couldn't sing. Abby Dalton, who just passed away this week, right. um, I had a, an extensive conversation with her, and Abby's just was just wonderful. But Abby had had before the Joey Bishop show been nominated for an Emmy for a show called Hennessy with Jackie Cooper. And when Abby came to to the Joey Bishop show, which was being reworked, they wanted her to become the next Mary Tyler Moore. It was on the same lot as. Uh, the Dick Van Dyke show and all the Sheldon Leonard, Danny Thomas shows. So they told Abby that they wanted her to be the next uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. So Abby would sit in on sessions at the Dick Van Dyke show and watch it. And she came back to Sheldon Leonard. She goes, it's great you want me to be the next Mary Tyler Moore, but unfortunately, I don't have Dick Van Dyke who can sing, who can dance, who had this great energy. <laughs> I have Joey Bishop, who's known as the Frown Prince, and he can't act. He can't sing. You know, Abby didn't have a, a high opinion of Joey uh, as a performer. One of the things that was really amazing about your book is how often you interview people that were like, Joey Bishop? God, why would you go <laughs> with that guy? <laughs> he, he had, you know, I had a friend named Rocky Kalish 
And Rocky, his name was Austin Kalish, and he had oh, he had a, a resume like on television. He created, he he co-created Gilligan's Island. He did all of the family. He won Emmys for Good Times and great writer. He had worked on the Joey Bishop show, and he had this lifelong hatred for Joey Bishop. <laughs> so the day that he died, I got a series of emails from Rocky, like Joey jokes of Joey dying and. You know, I got nas- the nastiest notes from all these old comedy writers who just really had an axe to grind because Joey was just so tough. There was there was a great writer on Joey's show that they, they brought in the best writers, Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas, because they really thought it could be the next Dick Van Dyke show. And so they brought in this writer named Milt Josephsburg. And Milt was the primary writer for Jack Benny for almost 20-something years. And Jack was winding down on television. They moved milk to the joey bishop show so milk wrote a script where joey played his twin brother his twin cousin and joey was getting angrier and angrier and finally milk who was about five foot four a very meek and mild-mannered guy joey grabbed milk josephsburg picked him up and started shaking him Jeez. joey goes, he goes why did you write all the funny lines for my twin cousin <laughs> I do want to explain that Joey, you know, you're playing the same part. You're you're playing both parts, but Joey just didn't have that grasp. How did you find him when you, when you saw him? Was he maybe mellowed with age? Did you find him to be a sort of prickly person? He was a South Philly kid, and he was a tough kid, and he was a tough older guy. And when I met him, he was very bitter. He thought the world forgot about him, and he tried to explain how he thought he was the spoke, he was the glue for the Rat Pack. And I never had the heart to say, well, you know, Joey, the Rat Pack's Frank Dean and Sammy, and you're there. And Joey just thought that the Rat Pack succeeded based on his talent. And, you know, Joey was interchangeable. You could have put uh, any 60s comic, Corbett Monica or Morty Gunty or anybody in there, and it would have been the same result because the Rat Pack is Frank Dean and Sammy and their talent. In general, I think the straight man uh, or like that MC role ends up being overlooked in comedy. And it is actually fairly like essential. It's it's nice sure. to have someone who's there to corral these sort of bigger stars. But what you're essentially doing is you're you're the measuring stick for them to shine brighter against yeah. you. <laughs> well, you know, in uh, vaudeville burlesque, the straight man would always get 60 percent and the comic would get 40 percent. So guys like Bud Abbott would always make more money because they had this great talent to kind of draw in the comic and make him look better. In Joey's case, Joey was the straight man for these for these guys. Right. And I mean, that's actually, that's what I've always liked about um, Dean Martin. I think he can, he played a, a better straight man than he was as just the, the happy drunk I thought was a little, a little less interesting, but you know, it has its moments like... Uh... But you have an unconventional take on on these guys and the Rat Pack in general, which is in part supported by uh, Joey Bishop's own unsentimental comments, it seems, that you sort of say that they are more of a, a marketing ploy and, and, and acknowledging the role that money is playing in, in getting the band together more than it was just like a fun hangout time or, or the dream that a lot of people tend to repeat. You know, it's almost like Liberty Valance. It's print the legend and they, they have printed the legend for, for 60 years. The fact is these were five middle-aged guys in the mid-40s. They were businessmen. And, and what happened was when they created the Rat Pack, it was created by a guy named Al Freeman, who was a publicist for the for the Sands Hotel. He had been Frank Sinatra's publicist earlier in his career, and he had went to Vegas. They paid him a lot of money. 
and the the rackets and the mobsters who own the hotels. They didn't want Vegas to be just the destination for Los Angeles. They saw it as an international destination. And Al Freeman's idea, he had seen the Danny Thomas show do the first couple episodes of the 1958 season, and it exploded in, in bookings for Las Vegas from New York, from Chicago, from, from all over the country. And he thought it would be great to do a mega event and with a, with a film, you know, also a, of a top-level film. Well, everything fell into place for the summit. Frank had watched a, an old act in the Sahara Lounge with Louis Prima and his wife, Keely Smith, and this guy named Sam Butera. It was this very loose, crazy act. It was, it was actually, it looked like it was improvised, but it was very loose. Keely Smith was almost like a share. She played very straight face to Louis Prima's, her husband's craziness. And Frank loved that. So Frank took Al Freeman the idea, let me get my buddies together. We'll, put, we'll do that kind of loose show and we'll do it as, as, a, as a long-term event. So they created a 28-day summit, which is through, the, through February of 1960. It would be two shows a night for 28 days. And Frank had just done, had worked with Dean Martin in Some Come Running. And so he, he wanted to work with, he really wanted to work with Dean. He had just nursed Sammy Davis Jr. back to health. Sammy had lost an eye in a car accident and was just getting his bearing, his dancing and everything back. So that worked out. And then Peter Lawford and Frank had an off and on relationship. In the 50s, Frank and Peter were friends, but then Peter gave rumors to Ava Gardner, who was at that time with Frank Sinatra. And Frank and Peter had this really acrimonious breakup. And when Peter married uh, Patricia Kennedy, Frank became interested again because of the Kennedy connection. Peter was trying to sell the script called Ocean's Eleven. The weird thing is, it was written by a gas station attendant. His name was George Clayton Thomas. And George Clayton Thomas, who later wrote uh, Logan's Run and a lot of mm. Twilight Zones, huh. at that time was a gas station attendant. But he had based a script. When he was in the Army, he worked in the black market during World War II. And it was a crew of friends, like 11 friends, who had all worked in the black market. And his basis of this script was that they would all get together after the war and plan out a heist in Las Vegas. So he tried to sell the script with himself in the lead, and no one wanted Peter Lawford in the lead. So um, he, he tried, then he showed Frank Sinatra the script. Frank took it to Jack Warner at Warner Brothers, and Jack Warner loved it, got Lewis Milestone as a director, which uh, Lewis Milestone had done a lot of top-notch films over the last 15 years. A lot of war films in particular, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front and, and all sorts of other war films. Yeah, he had like a varied career. He, I don't think he really attempted a loose comedy like this, but, you know, and he didn't know what he was getting into with Frank, Dean, and Sammy. So they set up, Frank's idea was, why don't we shoot the film the same time that we do this summit in Las Vegas? We'll do it on location. So except for a few shots in Los Angeles when they started the film and then later on they did some studio shots for interiors, they, they shot most of the film throughout Las Vegas and set it up with all the casino owners. So it was, it was based at the Sands where Frank and Dean and Sammy were and, and the Rat Pack. And so for 28 straight days in February, they had two shows a night. And then during the day they shot, they filmed Ocean's Eleven, which was like, if you're, if you're in your mid-40s, to do two shows, an 8, an eight o'clock show and a 12 o'clock show, then wake up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning 
to do makeup and hair for the film in, in Las Vegas, it's a grueling schedule. Frank Dean and Tammy, uh, Dean brought Jeannie, his wife, to the shoot. Uh, Joey had Sylvia at the shoot, his wife. Mae Britt was with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And she was dating him then and eventually married him. Peter Lawford had, had Patricia Kennedy. So these guys had their wives here. So, you know, the, the great notion is that these guys were out, you know, with girls and having parties and drinking. And where's the time to do that? And they're pros. Uh, as Dina Martin told me, you know, Dina, Dean may have drank in his private life, but when he when he was on stage and he worked, he drank the apple juice. I mean, it's it's a business, and but they Dean knew how to play the part of the happy drunk, and he sold it. That was a character he got, and they all played this you know freewheeling, happy, misogynistic group. You know, bring on the broads, and they sold it. They sold that image, and it was an image, and it was a, a concocted freewheeling time. Everything fell into place. The Sands Hotel, which had 200 rooms or 250 rooms, had 35,000 bookings when they announced it. Vegas exploded and news cameras came from all over and it became the $7 ticket. There were were $7 a ticket for the show. It was sold out right away. Every star wanted to be seen there. Every person wanted to be seen there in Las Vegas at this time. So it became like a free-for-all and all the cameras from all over the world converged. And it was everything that the that Al Freeman and the guys in Las Vegas dreamed of. And this was putting Las Vegas on the map as a as a fun as this wild, fun town. And who better to lead it than Frank Sinatra? And but Frank was a businessman first. And only nine percent of the of the uh, Sands Hotel. He made a ton of profit during during this period. How do you personally feel about the Rat Pack are you like do you call yourself a fan or is this more like an interest I know like Bart for example is is not well, really I... a fan and the, <laughs> the whole misogynistic aspect seems to have turned yeah. turned Bart off more than anything which I'm I'm on board with I don't really like the misogyny either but when I watch the film I love the talent of Frank and Dean and Sammy but I cringe at the misogyny and at the attitude. It's it's kind of cringeworthy when you watch the original Ocean's Eleven. When you see the film, you know, you see parts where Angie Dickinson is treated like, you know, and, and women are treated as second-class citizens, and it's another era. It's Angie Dickinson. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's fun to watch the talent of the guys, but it's hard to watch the attitude. And we took a look at it and think that when John Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, it took the air out of the sails of that attitude. And that was like the last breath of this misogynistic Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin attitude of that era. Yeah, you make a great point about connecting that event with also this this whole marketing scheme and, and saying that, like, you know, it, considering that this was all just a setup to sell tickets for the Sands, uh, it became so powerful that, uh, it, you know, it literally influenced a, a presidential election and then and then also at the same time died with that same president. Yeah, you know, Joe Kennedy was probably one of the most brilliant publicists himself. He, he created FBO Studios. He's one of the creators which later became RKO, new film. And then he became a bootlegger in the 1930s with all these racketeers and became a became the ambassador to England to the court of St. James after that. So Joe Kennedy knew great PR. 
And when he was running, he wanted his son to be president. You know, he did. He didn't want his son to to look like Richard Nixon, this very stodgy, stale. Even though Nixon and Kennedy were almost the same age, Nixon looked like he was from an older generation. Yeah. <laughs> so he, his idea was, since Peter Lawford was in the family, he wanted Peter Lawford to get Frank Sinatra and his group involved in the in the campaign. So he he decided to put John out there for three days and to rub off and to be shot before the all the cameras, that here he is, he's hip, he's part of the Sinatra group, he's a new generation, he's got this great energy. And another thing that Joe Kennedy did was, since he knew all the mobsters, he, you know, the mobsters are very worried that Las Vegas eventually will be shut down by Congress. So he said, you know, you'll have a friend in the White House if we get elected, you won't have that. You won't have us breathing down your neck, which which turned out to be a complete uh, wrong idea to sell to these guys. And so he got uh, Mo Dalitz and he got Frank Costello from from the East Coast and Meyer Lansky and all these guys to contribute a million dollars. So when John Kennedy left the Rat Pack event in in uh, February of 1960, he left with a satchel of a million dollars in cash that Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, Peter Lawford had seen. And they and it, it, they took it back, you know, as a campaign donation. So there were so many things going on during this event. And it just really, it, it made an impact uh, that still resonates to this day. It's so funny too, because as you said, it's all these, these guys in their mid forties, just kind of <laughs> semi-phoning it in, in a way. <laughs> you know, when you look at it, here in this era is at that time Elvis and others breathing down the neck of Frank Sinatra, right. and the Beatles are just around the corner. So it's kind of the last. They they knew it too. They were this was the time to make the money and to really cash in because they knew that their their window was closing. Which I guess is maybe a good introduction to Ocean's Eleven, which is the film that you you chose for us to talk about today. Which is really is the peak of, of the Rat Pack movies. I mean, I've I've seen the movie before and I always thought it was, you know, slapped together, a little bit lazy, but it really like everything is downhill after after Ocean's Eleven. It's it's by far the, the most entertaining of these guys films together. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch having just watched you know, some of the worst, like Four from Texas. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we did Four for Texas and we did Robin in the Seven Hoods yeah. on Cinema 60 so far, I think. But not Sergeants 3. Why do they like these the numbers so much? <laughs> 11, 3. Sergeants 3 is okay. Well, the three were Sam Deans and Frank. So the Keystone Rat Pack picture is Ocean's 11. Because that's the film where all of them are together. It's more freewheeling. It captures what they were. Robin and the Seven Hoods. The, the great part to me of Robin and the Seven Hoods is 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 Peter Falk as Guy yeah. Gisborne. But uh, you know, and and Four for Texas was kind of a quasi because it only had Frank and Dean. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the worst of the batch, I think. That has to be. It did have the Three Stooges, so yeah. <laughs> well, what I thought in, was interesting about Ocean's Eleven is that. 
Frank is not even really the star. I mean, he's Ocean and you know, because he's Frank, you you get the impression, okay, he's he's the ringmaster running things here, but he doesn't have a huge role. He doesn't have much to do in the movie. I mean, more more than anybody, I would say it's it's Peter Lawford's movie after all. Like he he was the one pitching the movie and wanted to play Ocean, but uh, in the end, the, the movie they made became sort of his character arc more than anybody else's. So I, I found that interesting to watch. And and it seems like Frank in general is happy to take a back seat as, as long as his marketing tool of the Rat Pack is functioning properly. He can, you know, just let it do its thing and, and, and be, be happy about it. Yeah, I, I think Frank is, is still the, the center because he's Danny Ocean and he's, you know, sort of like George Clooney with everybody around them. But Cesar Romero gets a big chunk of this film. Yeah. Uh, Dean Martin gets kind of a backseat to everything. Joey Bishop, you barely see. But Frank is still, he has Angie Dickinson as his wife, and it's based on Danny Ocean getting his guys together. I think during the creation of the script, Peter Lawford had a lot more input, actually, into the script. Since he worked with uh, George Clayton Thomas, Peter Lawford had worked on the script for about three years before it got to Frank. So, you know, Peter Lawford had more input into the script than anything else, uh, by the time he reached uh, after Sarge's three, there was no more Peter Lawford because he was booted out of the group. It was funny watching it this time around. I was paying a little more attention to old Joey Bishop, <laughs> <laughs> realizing he didn't even get like top billing. He's listed as a bit player even in the credits here. And, and he's so barely in this and in a weird way, you know, considering he's meant to be part of this this group, or at least he sold himself as that. It is kind of funny. I mean, he makes, you know, like he's noticeable, but. It, it's just he's so he's so in the background well with his small stature and his haircut he's he looks a lot like frank sinatra in this movie i mean almost it's almost as if you if you combine norman fell and frank sinatra you'd get joey bishop <laughs> and uh but he he does sort of like you sort of forget he's there because he's kind of the like guy in the background who sort of looks like frank sinatra well, he has a good orange sweater yeah the, the, the only the key to joey that he told me was he made sure he got the right sweater. So there's always that red sweater that sticks out. So that, that was Joey's uh, key to fame in this. But Joey was, Joey had only done a couple films before that. He did a war film and he did another film. So he wasn't an actor. He wasn't even a trained actor. He didn't have the skills. I mean, uh, Peter Lawford had been in films since the 1940s. And Frank Sinatra was, was of course, a veteran of film. And so was Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. So Joey didn't have the, the kind of chops really to do much more beyond what he could do. The funny thing is, in Robin of the Seven Hoods, Joey was going to be Guy Gisborne, the part that Peter Lawford played before he, he worked his way uh, out on the out with uh, Frank Sinatra. Watching the movie this time around, I was also trying to pay more attention to the blatant marketing in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, besides the scenes, of course, inside of each casino, which is actually a lot of fun, honestly, seeing what Vegas was in its in its heyday yeah, and seeing right. it now yeah. and just how how rambling and bizarre it's really become. It's become such a weird Disney world for adults. And it used yeah. to be just more sort of wood paneling and in broads, yeah. you know, like <laughs> kind of... the scale has really exploded. Yeah, yeah. It seemed kind of manageable back in 1960, but yeah, uh, but, you yeah. Know, it was it was the greatest product placement for the casinos themselves. I mean, it was you see the signs of the sands and the Sahara and the Riviera and the Desert Inn. So, you, and there's so much other product placement. In fact, that Frank Sinatra had arranged. There are actually product 
that paid Frank, the company, to place it in there, um, including his brand of liquor and other things. Huh. It was one of the first films that used product placement. That's pretty interesting. Frank's an actor's idea. Huh. I mean, I love that when they're planning the whole heist, you have that scene of them with a, it looked like a silk scarf, but I think it was just meant to be a map of where the casinos are. And it has everyone's like name in the specific font and branding of these casinos. Yeah. And at first we're going to go to the Sands, then we're going to go to the Flamingo, you know, <laughs> just straight up, you know, and also even including the fact that like, what is it like root, Route 91 or something, and there's only one way in and one way out. Like they, they yeah. it's they're really just selling you on how to get there and then what to do when you're there. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was a brilliant plan, and the the great thing is is that uh, Frank was happy because they got him nine percent of the of the sands, so he was making money out of it, and the, and the mob bosses were like thrilled to death because it was mostly a a destination from Los Angeles in the in the 40s and 50s. And after that, everybody from New York and from Chicago and from all the cities, St. Louis, they all wanted to come to Las Vegas and see what they saw in Ocean's Eleven. They wanted to be part of that because it was Frank, Dean, and Sammy and everybody there. It's interesting how the Sands doesn't really get any special attention in the movie. It's just one of five major casinos in Las Vegas. And it seems like that's kind of Frank's MO. It's like, I'm selling an atmosphere. I'm not selling me. I'm selling the life. This is a lifestyle. It's, uh, you know, come to Las Vegas and, and we'll all profit from it. And also, Bart, you don't want to step on the wrong toes in Las Vegas. So <laughs> you don't want to cut out one hotel or the other because one hotel is owned by Martin Lansky. The other is by... Uh, Lucky Luciana, you know, so you don't, they were very political on this. We have to make sure everybody got attention. That's a good point. I thought it was sort of, yeah, it was interesting that um, when Dean Martin is singing uh, Ain't That a Kick in the Head, he's actually meant to be playing at the Sahara, I think, which is where Joey's meant to be working. Yeah, and the Sahara is where Frank saw, if you ever see the clips, Louis Prima and Keely Smith and a sax player named Sam Butera played in the Sahara Lounge. And that's what that was kind of the uh, impetus. That was what they based the Rat Pack on. So it's hmm. great if you ever go to YouTube and watch those clips, you'll see this loose group that played in the Sahara Lounge. Huh. That sounds great. I, I met I met Keely Smith. That's that's my claim to fame. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I worked for a record company, she she did a did a solo album and uh, and she yeah. had, she had a long affair with Frank Sinatra after Louis Prima and. Uh, huh. She had a lot long history in Las Vegas. Frank liked those ladies with the pixie cuts, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) He liked all ladies. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) But Ocean's Eleven, you know, the great thing is I talked to Mo Dalitz, who was one of the creators of Las Vegas. He he eventually helped build the convention center in Sunrise Hospital. And he built built the Sands and the Desert Inn. And the, the thing was, he was more of a businessman than anything else. And I got a dissertation on, on how they really didn't, didn't want to get, they were getting thrown in jail and, and arrested all over the country. And this was a way in brick and mortar that they could invest their money and make dollars. And they did this as, as a brilliant business proposition. And they saw the idea to build these mega resorts at that time. And it was it was really on the backs of the Rat Pack that today's Las Vegas has become the destination site, you know, the entertainment capital. It, it really it like it really has persisted, which is it's 
I don't know. It's it's sort of funny. It's it's just funny to see how these legends grow. <laughs> it's like it's such a simple concept, but it's just you know, as you said, a bunch of dudes trying to save their careers that are in a bit of a lull and and trying to move on, and this creates everything that that balloons into either a presidency or <laughs> a lasting um, yeah. legacy of of mar- like the same marketing that's still happening in Vegas. This whole yeah, you know, I I go to, I've gone to clubs like five. Einstein's in New York and other ones, and you always see these 60s uh, salute to the rat back, and you see these guys that are dressing up like they're out of the 60s. They're wearing the same clothes as Sam and Dean and Frank wore, and it's this is this is 60 years later, and it's this is like they're la- they're still holding on to that the old misogynistic idea that the rat pack represented. And there's a rat pack group in, in, at the Mandalay Bay uh, right now. They're not doing anything but it was selling out it was people are just jamming you know to watch this and it's 60 years and, and when you realize it the rat pack only existed for basically 1960 right mm-hmm. except for the couple of movies afterward it was just those 28 days and the time at the fountain blue and the world premiere of the, of the of oceans 11 and that was the that was the <laughs> essence of the rat pack well i i, I pulled some uh quotes actually from your book here for um the reviews of the time when the movie came out, which I thought were amazing. (laughs) So uh, like the Los Angeles times uh, you have quoted as saying, if this picture can be parlayed into a great success then they've gotten away with real murder, if not, (laughs) and the public ignores one of the truly emptiest displays on record, maybe some of these many talents will actually uh, go to work. (laughs) I also like uh, this film is one of the few that typifies the demoralization trend in filmmaking today. There's no punishment for the crime. <laughs> it, it it was it was a fun film. It wasn't meant to be anything more than just a way to watch Frank and Dean and Sammy and the guys. And so you know, and Milestone do that. The plot line is very flimsy. In fact, they watered it down more for this. You know, to make it less complicated. Because the original script had a much deeper and more complicated heist. Kind of. The heist takes like five minutes in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's more with Dean in the parking lot with Shirley MacLaine. Or it's, you know, it's it's all these little snippets of, of it put together. Uh, Cesar Romero playing a tough guy. and it's just... Richard Conti actually gets to shine in this movie, I thought. I mean, maybe because he's the only actual actor in this group of, you know, entertainers who are trying to act. But. You know, he's he's this noir actor that I never, you know, I liked him well enough, but he's just, you know, Richard Conti. But in this movie, he's he has a whole lot of pathos. Like you really sort of care about this guy. And we're we're kind of bad about spoilers on this show, but his his eventual death is a big plot point in this movie. But you really feel you feel bad. Like it's the only kind of emotional touchstone in the in the whole movie is is sort of this uh, Richard Conti and, and yeah, what happens to him. It shows back his backstory of him coming out of prison with his young son. And and so you, and Richard Conte could carry that out. Yeah. There's also a lot of Frank's cronies, guys like Hank Henry, who was a, uh, if you remember from Pal Joey, he was the, the nightclub owner. He was always in Frank films, films as a thug. And he was a burlesque comic in Las Vegas. Uh, oh, Lester, Jerry Lester is in this film. And, Jerry Lester has a has a bigger part as one of the eleven. You know, he played he even played in films like The Nutty Professor in the sixties. You know, as the you know, with the Jerry Lewis. So they, you know, a lot of Frank's buddies were like 
jammed into this film. Norman Fell has a kind of smaller part in this film. Who's the Who's the cowboy in this movie? I didn't recognize him. I was wondering how he got mixed up in the whole uh, in the whole show. You know, I forgot the actor's name, but he was a character actor at the time, and he had done a lot of westerns on television. And I think he just uh, was central casting rather than they had known who he was. No connection otherwise. I don't think so. Mm. You know, Milestone had like, Frank was always a kind of a one-take actor. So if you didn't get Frank in that one take, and if he gave you a second take, you were lucky. So Frank came in and did his shots. And even with Frank Capra and a lot of other directors he worked with, he believed that, you know, he could give you your best, his best in the first take he was prepared. Mm -hmm. I read that before Ocean's Eleven got decided on, the film they were looking at was a script that was meant to be directed by Frank Capra, it was a Jimmy Durante biopic with all of them. Yeah. With with uh, Dean as Durante. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I would have watched it. Bit interesting take. And Capra had done a hole in the head with uh, Frank Sinatra. And they got in kind of a battle after the film was released. And Capra was just fed up with, with Hollywood at that time. I think the hole in the head was was his last picture. Uh, he made yeah. some Bell, Bell Telephone Hour um, specials, but I think that was it for Frank Capra. Yeah, I've always talked to people. Who, a lot of them thought that Frank Sinatra was an amazing actor, but that they they you know he gave them no choice. It was that one take, and so Lewis Milestone had a hard time corralling everybody and getting everybody on site and ready to shoot and to, and. He had a real tight schedule of uh, of 28 days to shoot. And then I think he had two weeks to shoot back in Los Angeles. Yeah, all of those guys. I, I know that Dean Martin is, uh, ben, eventually became that guy more more so uh, in his older age with especially the Dean Martin show. I think he had written into his contract that uh, he doesn't ever have to rehearse and that he basically walks in, reads it off the cue card the entire time and then walks right back out to the golf course. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And when we watched all those Matt Helm movies, Jenna and I did, uh, did an episode where we did all four of Matt Helm movies. And so many of the one-liners in that are done in post-production. Like, it's, yeah. it really seemed like Dean would show up, shoot what he had to shoot in one take, and then, like, everything else was just done in post. So, like, you know. Yeah, he would, so, he would, do, so sloppy. He would do a lot of looping uh, on films because sometimes you could understand Dean because Dean would by that time would just get in and do his work and get out. And on the TV show, he, Greg Garrison produced it and they would have, everybody would have to block out and do their work during the week. And when Dean came in on a Friday, that was it. I mean, that was, he just read the cue cards. He knew what to do. He knew his part. And, and uh, that was it. You had to work around it. It was almost, you know, Jackie Gleason was sort of like that on the honeymooners. Everybody worked all week. And on Saturday when they did it uh, live, they never had worked with Gleason all week, so Art Carney and Audrey Meadows had to improvise with Gleason. To Dean Martin's credit, when it's when it's good, it's great, but when it's otherwise, you're like, oh, it's really unwatchable. <laughs> oh, I, if you've ever saw a film called Kiss Me Stupid by Billy yes. Wilder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jenna and I have, have big disagreements about that movie. You know, I, I just can I know I, I just recently watched it again, and I and I got a chance to talk with Billy Wilder and interview him. Oh, wow. And I really wanted to know what went through his head. I mean, he had Izzy Diamond. He had the same people. And it's probably one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I mean, Ray Walston kind of 
choose the scenery. I mean, I don't, uh, before that, Peter Sellers was doing the part, and before that, they wanted Jack Lemon. But Dean Martin is such, he's walking through his Dino, and it's such a, a weird experience of Dean playing Dean. You know, the character, Dean's character, we said, we, that we buy that, that loose swinging playboy. And but that's what. <laughs> That's what Jenna loves about it. That's what I love about it because he it's like this bizarre like caricature of himself that's very unflattering. It's it's really like he's just sitting there playing the worst possible version of himself. Like even yeah. his show it feels like he's sleepwalking through it. Yeah. It's shot that way like it's it's sort of this amazing like I I want to give him credit for it being this sort of almost perfect comedy send up of himself, but like I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> It, it, you know, and with Billy Wilder, who was so precise in what he did, it just was shocking to see him to allow, to allow Dean to play this broad caricature of himself, you know, where he has to have sex every day and uh, <laughs> no back. And you have all this great talent that goes to waste. And, and I think Dean is so weak in that. It's just, to me, it's just shocking. For me, Walston is really what drags that film down, but but oh, Dean yeah. is, is nothing special. Peter Sellers would have yeah. been amazing. Novak's pretty good. I like Novak. Yeah, Novak's Peter, pretty good. <laughs> Peter Sellers had, I think, 13 heart attacks. I know. Uh, on the making of that, so it would have been a different film if Jack Lemmon was there. Because mm-hmm. Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon were always, like, great together, but um, I asked Billy Wilder, and he just would laugh, and I actually asked, is he Diamond? They just never had an answer for... Um, what went through their minds to create something like that? <laughs> I I say that it was it's misunderstood. I, I sort of there's something really strange and off about it that might not have been on purpose, but I find I find sort of fascinating. It's it's almost weirdly progressive in how backwards it is. <laughs> it's a, it's really a, a unique film, and I and I tried to watch it again recently. I just I still have the same awkward feeling watching it. <laughs> do you do you like Ocean's Eleven? Is this like a movie that you ever want to revisit or is it just like it's fine, it's fun, it is what it is? It's fine, it's fun, it's whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it, I like seeing, I always love to see Sinatra and Martin. I mean, I just have a fascination with the magnetic power they had on stage. You know, I, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to see them on stage till they were all older. So I saw Dean and Frank and Sammy do an act in the, in the late 80s, and they were terrible. It was it really was <laughs> hard watching them. And I think Dean was going through the paces, and he eventually left. Liza Minnelli replaced them. And it just was hard watching them when they were older. So I can only imagine that electric feeling they had. This was, this was the, the peak of their career for all of them. And this was, yeah. well, they were at the, their powers. And Sinatra on stage, not when I saw him, but early on, was it was absolutely amazing. And, you know, it, it, I think it was kind of captured in film a little bit in this film. What, uh, if you want to experience the Rat Pack, or, or let's say Frank and, and Dean and Sammy, like what, where, what do you go to? What's, the, what's, what's them at their prime, at their best? What do you watch when you want to see them? You know, Frank had, Frank was so great. And so in the, from the Manchurian Candidate to even from here to eternity, I, I love a hole in the head. I love Frank in, in the film he did by Max Shulman in, in the 50s with uh, Debbie Reynolds, A Tender Trap. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fun films to watch. And Frank had, had, I think, great dramatic talent. Dean, I love seeing Dean in Airport. 
Uh, airport's <laughs> on film, and Dean is not walking through as much as he has in other parts. I mean, he has feels badly for his girlfriend, who's who's a stewardess who's injured. And Sammy, Sammy was never to me captured on film properly. You never really saw the real Sammy Davis Jr. on stage. So Sammy's more forgotten because Sammy's body of work in film is salt and pepper with uh, Peter Lawford. Oh, a film directed by Jerry Lewis, which makes it really great. We watched A Man Called Adam for for Cinema 60, and that's a real lost classic. I think Sammy's fantastic in that. He doesn't have any song and dance numbers in it, which is really what he's best at. But as an actor, he's fantastic in that movie. And Sammy had acted since the 1930s. He had done shorts in the 30s. So Sammy was a, you know, I don't think Sammy ever had a part that really challenged him. The way that you'd see Dean or, or, or Frank or well, Joy Bishop never had any part in any <laughs> Texas across the river. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Joey, Joey made an album, a country album. And I, and I said, should I listen to this? And I bought a CD of it and it's Joey singing country music. And I'm telling you, my ears are still bleeding. <laughs> it's Oh my you know, God, how does that exist? I need to look that up right now. <laughs> oh, you'll see a, a picture of it and it's absolutely frightening. And Joey had to be a very limited talent as a comic, a very, very limited talent. And he is so lucky that Frank Sinatra touched his life because he had a window of 10 years and he got a TV show out of it, a talk show out of it. And his talent to me is just so limited as a comic. I mean, he was not in any class to be a, a superstar. He was that on TV. He had a four-year situation comedy. He had a three-year talk show on ABC. And to get that kind of showcase with his limited talent, is that's all, that always surprised me. I, I always knew that he was a, a cantankerous person. I didn't realize just how much until I, I was reading your book here. I mean, like, it's funny, too, because you get, like, comedians like, um, you know, Don Rickles was meant to be famously very sweet and, and a really lovely what? person, whereas Joey Bishop seems like the exact opposite. Like, offstage, he had zero sense of humor. Um, I the, the story is from Warren Berlinger that you had, which who, yeah. who also just died today, unfortunately. Yeah, I talked to Warren, and Warren said, Oi, oi, why would you want to talk to a guy like Why would you want to be waste three minutes on him? And Warren <laughs> went into like a dissertation. Warren had come from starring in Come Blow Your Horn on Broadway, and he played the Tony Bill part that was in the film. And Warren really had this big career before he got to the Joey Bishop show. And he said his career went into reverse after getting involved in the first version of the Joey Bishop show. You know, every writer I ever talked to, every comic, Shecky Green, I talked to Don Rickles, I talked to Bob Newhart. They all had this, like, low opinion of Joey Bishop. They'd all nod their head. He just had such a reputation, and he got very carried away with himself. In uh, 63, he was asked by Frank to go into the Caldiva Hotel and fill in for Frank. And if Frank asks you a favor, because he... He puts you in the spotlight. You just grab it. And you say yes. You don't even ask questions. Joey wanted a plane. Joey wanted uh, so much money. Joey wanted all these perks. And Frank cut him off for the rest of his career. That's spelled the end of Joey Bishop because the only reason we, we talk about Joey Bishop or know about him is because of Frank Sinatra. Right. I mean, I guess uh, I, I'm like trying to understand like why he would shoot himself in the foot like that, I suppose. Yeah. 
I just, after you know years of maybe just being the the nice guy and being the person who as as you mentioned that he said that he would never invite himself to frank's dinner table and he would always uh, you know wait for an invitation and and sort of yeah. always be in the background so he never wanted to offend anyone and then it seems like he got to a point where he thought well i've made it and then just turned into like a horrific person <laughs> yeah it that's that's what surprised us is that here's a guy who worked 25 years as a journeyman to get to this part. So usually you're very seasoned and you're appreciative that you got to this position. Guys like Don Rickles did the same thing, but Don always, you know, was was in person really nice and, and bent over backwards to, to everybody and helped young comics. And, and Frank Sinatra loved him. But Joey, I, we don't, you know, his, his head got very swelled very quickly and he really thought he was this great talent. And up until his death, he just thought he was all that. He was this great talent. But the, from the time he was 55 years old until his death when he was nearly, he was 90, he didn't work. He didn't work for him. He did a couple of match games. He did a Hollywood Squares. But basically, he was out of work for the next 40 years. Yeah, which which from the stories that you have in this is not surprising. He just seems like such a nightmare. Well, we, we know what you think of, of four out of five members of the Rat Pack. I think what we're all dying to know is, how do you feel about Peter Lawford? Peter Lawford probably had the least talent of everybody. <laughs> you know, I did a book on uh, for Simon Schuster called The Life and Times of Mickey Rooney. And I got to talk to Peter's widow. And Peter was known as a gossip in Hollywood. And he did the same thing he did to Frank. He stabbed him in the back with uh, the same person with Ava Gardner. Peter, like another politician, Peter knew how to marry up. He married Patricia Kennedy, and that helped him in his career. That got him more work. To me, he's a bad caricature of David Niven or of that ilk of actor, you know, trying to play up his his English accent. And uh, I think the talent is limited. I mean, on stage, you know, they didn't know what to do with him. I mean, they didn't. he couldn't tell jokes. He couldn't sing. He couldn't dance. I have to say that... Um... He had the one line in Ocean's Eleven that actually made me laugh out loud um, when he's talking to his mother, trying to get some money. And he's, he has a line about what a way to make a living. And I, he delivered <laughs> that perfectly. As, as, you know, he did exactly what he was supposed to do in Ocean's Eleven. I, I, uh, I, I can't fault him for that movie at all. But, yeah, he, he didn't seem to have any kind of lasting talent, did he? No, he, he you know, he had that. And after that, he had a lot of problems with drugs and uh, marriages and uh he had a pretty dismal last, you know, couple decades of his life. But uh, in the 40s and 50s in MGM, the, uh, the television show he did, The Thin Man, was okay. But, I mean, beyond that, there wasn't much more that Peter Lawford did. But, uh, you know, the, the Ocean's Eleven is a, a lot of things. It's a great time capsule. And you see that era for the, for the last time. And this is the... As we talked about earlier, it's the was the last big blowout of misogyny. I mean, this the, all the fireworks, and that was it for a film like that. I mean, if you watch it today through the prism of 2020, it's it's cringeworthy. The film is cringeworthy. Yeah, I mean, you've got Angie Dickinson, who's got two scenes in the movie, and not much personality. She just looks good. You've got Danny's mistress in Vegas, who's trying to ruin his life, and she's just. You know, horrible caricature of misogyny, and uh, and that's it. Other otherwise, you've got some women were giving Danny and uh, Sam, whatever Dean Martin's name is, some some rubdowns early on with no lines of dialogue. But it's 
it is a man's movie. There's no place for women in this universe. In any of these Rat Pack movies, there, there's no place for women other than to, you know, have a little fun in the sack. Yeah. It is funny to see these movies, you know, to see a movie like this in 1960 in comparison to anything from 1969. <laughs> it really feels like a totally new world. I mean, there's always some degree of, of obviously, of change as, as time moves on in a decade's time. But can you imagine at the beginning of 2010 versus 2020 movies? Like, it's different, but it's not that different. <laughs> no, it's, it, there's a sea change. And, you know, although we, we, we went through kind of a, a weird world with uh, certain political people this in this generation. Yeah, kind of was a throwback to misogyny. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's what we thought of Ocean's Eleven. That it, it it resonates to this maybe the people who support that kind of thought because there's still a lot of people who love Ocean's Eleven and the and the misogyny of the Rat Pack. You know, people want to go back and live in that 1960s era. And that kind of misogynistic uh, belief that, you know, the Rat Pack propelled. Yeah. I talk a lot in, in Cinema 60 about the dream of the 60s, which for me ends up being like a Technicolor pop. It's like almost how to succeed in business, but in real life. But, um, you know, I think you're right. I think most a lot of people have the, their dream of the 60s is just like misogyny and suits <laughs> which is funny because as as you said it just was never even a reality there's obviously kernels of reality that are being expanded upon but uh i also i just have to say i i know bart wants to say something but i i loved your your um line about how uh, joey was as close to frank as mike pence is to donald trump <laughs> <laughs> it's like seems seems about right to me yeah it's 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 interesting and and uh I actually had a chance to interview Donald Trump for my Mickey Rooney book. Oh yeah, and it was right as he was starting to run for president. So it gives us an and he loved just as a note. He loves Ocean's Eleven and he loves the Rat Pack. Oh, of course. How could yeah, he not? Not surprising. <laughs> well, I think um, just talking to you now and reading your book, you've you've given Jenna and I a real tipping point as far as the early 60s and the later 60s, like when November 1963, like you sort of pinpointed as the end of misogyny, the end right. of that particular dream, um, you know, Kennedy assassination and, and, you know, sort of punctured a hole in that, that way of thinking, that way of being just this sort of grand image of uh, drinking and sleeping around and, and treating women like crap. And, and I think that really like from this point forward, we probably will sort of use that as a, as a point, like, after after 63 you've got the beatles and that that's when the kids really started to take over like that's that's when they they started to be heard and then the previous generation just started becoming more and more irrelevant and that's when weed became the drug of choice instead of alcohol and right. it really it, it seems to... free love became the misogyny of the <laughs> yeah right. it was a different era and a different time and i think the assassination changed. It took a more of a naive country and it made it became more reality. And I think that took the wind out of the sails of, of anything that Frank and Dean and Sammy were selling with the Rat Pack. I mean that it made it very seem very passe after that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that was that was the end of that era. And I think Jack Kennedy actually uh, unfortunately represents that that era and is a face of the Rat Pack for that era too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It, it was an interesting take looking at it and looking at it through Joey's eyes gave us kind of a, a fresh perspective and seeing how they were created unit and how it was really very well planned out 
we didn't want to print the, the legend on this. We wanted to go exactly to the, what's got it to where it was. You got that across right in the in the opening pages of your book. Yeah. Well, that's good. And we did our work. <laughs> and we wish you the best of luck with your book. It's It's been great talking to you. Yeah, I'm no, so thank much. you so much for this because it, again, as somebody who is a non-conventional, I don't know, I, like, I don't want to say I'm a Rat Pack fan, but like I do, I find them fascinating. So like I do, I've watched all their movies and I, you know, and really enjoy reading books about this stuff and that whole era and that whole uh, sphere of, of craziness that was happening. Yeah, but, um, it's a guilty pleasure sort of. Yeah, it really <laughs> is, which is like, that's when I, I can get it, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting also to, to almost indulge in this sort of fantasy that isn't mine. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, But I I also really I love to see something like this where you're you're being honest about it, you know, and I think it's just as fascinating to hear about how this was a marketing ploy uh, as it is to to imagine that this was some fun hangout group. You know, it's it's just as enlightening. And I think that probably, you know, if we were a little more honest about this stuff in general and and outside of maybe the classroom and this was more overt in a lot of media, we'd probably be in a different place anyhow if we weren't believing only the dream and, and right you know taking it's that the, grain of salt yeah the fantasy versus reality right. we'll never get over the cult of personality though like you know celebrity you know, just being famous whitewashes everything you can oh it, it, it exists more today than it even did in 1960 yep <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Richard. I, I really, really appreciate having you on here. And, and the, the book, again, everyone should go and buy it. It's out now, Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. And you will learn more about Joey Bishop than you ever wanted to know. But it <laughs> really, I really enjoyed reading it. And again, in part because everyone you interview is like, oh, that schmuck. Like, <laughs> it's really, it's really, really fun to read and, and interesting and and you do paint a great picture of everyone involved from murdering to the rat pack to you know all of this sort of colorful cast of characters well thank you so much it, it was it's fun to 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 write it's fun to research and to talk to people who were who were there in that era to, to really get their perspective but thanks again Barb and aunt jenna for uh, for your time yeah thank thanks you. for coming on it was great talking to you You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.